Welcome to the Jew and Gentile Podcast. I am your host, Chris Katolka, and with me is none other than the Jewish sage himself, the one and only Mr. Steve Herzig. How are you, sir? Actually, I'm pretty good, Chris. Happy premature 5,784. Okay, what does that even mean? Well, our listeners will have to stay tuned as we say happy 5,784. <laughs> are you doing okay? You sounded a little mellow coming in. Were mellow? you mellow? Mellow? Yeah. No. I mean, I was trying to hype you up and you said, well, here we are. Uh, well, I, you know, what are you going to do? All right. I, I am what I am. Here we go. Welcome in, welcome in. Steve. Are you okay? I'm okay. Okay, good. We got our mug on a mug. You're we there. We got our mug on a mug. I'm really okay. Look, we got smiles there. We got. We had a one person who in the office here who saw it. He said, "Hey, I thought you were getting a mug on a mug. You guys really got a good." He put "good" in front of a it. good mug. He said, "This is quality." Now you, we can't speak what do you think, for this the is chopped liver. He <laughs> can't speak for the mugs on the mug, oh, yeah, but it I is a good mug. The mug itself is good. The mugs that are on them. Eh. We'll see. I don't know. Yeah, they might scare you. Hey, you know, pretty soon we'll be sharing a link with everybody on uh, how you can get... Pretty soon, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling for the seven people who listen, they want to know, you're talking about this mug. You got the mug on your Steve table. Steve walks around with the I mug. And I said, when can we make them available? Just give it a That's moment. A, give it a moment. Give it listen, a moment. I'm 70 years old. I don't have a lot of time to wait. <laughs> you just give it a... It'll work. And then, boom. Yeah, then you'll then you'll I'm waiting the, for the boom. You know, it's like the return of the Lord. You know, as we tarry, as he tarries, you know, we're we're waiting. You have to have he wants us to have patience. He's he's commanding you to have patience. He's, well, you know, you know, Chris, as you said, sanctification. Boom, you said boom. We had Roxanne on last week, and you, of course, were unaware of the bio Aye. uh what was it? The bio problem. There was a problem on a plane, and they had to land it because of a person, a person's issues. And I found out just yesterday because we, she came in to talk about it. That's what I want to bring up. The guy, the, a guy came in and he said, uh, "Just want you to know." Well, he comes into a Home I, Depot, a Home Depot, and he said, "I'm going to drop a bomb." And they, the, a guy called, Aye. and they exited <laughs> the home. It was they called the police. They did everything, and the kind of bomb that he was, he was talking, talking about, about a different was bomb. something entirely well, different the poor i just i still can't get over that poor lady ay 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 and uh rox that's why roxanne who was our guest last week she said i just have to follow up on what you were guys were talking about that's uh, hey, leave let, it to roxanne well listen you know steve on our text line of 424-444-1948 we, we get, always get great texts but i would like to highlight a friend of ours um, Ron from South Carolina and Ron saw our, uh, bobbleheads that we have. And that's if you're, right. uh, if you're watching, you're there they are. Me. That's right. You're our tall. bobbleheads and Ron, one of our, our, uh, frequent listeners, uh, he also went out and bought bobbleheads. I, I gave him the link. So he sent me a picture. <laughs> Who he, who, who's this bobblehead? Well, number one, I'm going to tell you this right now, Ron, your beard is on Point. So he Are got you, a bobblehead for himself. He, and his, it looks like his wife. A, a couple. A bobblehead couple. Well, he sent a picture. You ready? Yeah. There you go. Oh, they <laughs> should. He should turn. Oh, they're on one pedestal. You should. They should have gotten separate and had them like that. And then they could kiss each other. Oh, that. Yep. Well, you know what? 
Ron, that can be for Ron's second one. I want to see if people can get it. Oh, I don't Look know if I'm at doing that. that what right. a great bobblehead couple. Let's see. There you go. If you're watching on YouTube, you can kind of see Ron and his Chris, wife there. Chris, if we did nothing else, when you gave me that gift, which was a nice gift, and then I told you to get your own, we did a good deed. We did a mitzvah. That Ron went out. And he's got a bobblehead couple. Well, what amazing. Well, I'm, you know, I don't know Ron's age, but him and his wife look pretty young. So, they, they, you know, they, look at that. He Not actually a, looks like your twin. I know. Look, look at this. Look, it's amazing. Look, look Ron, are we that. twins? What's Ron going on? Separated at birth. I just, he has zero gray in his beard. I've got nothing but gray in my that beard. That is amazing. Ron, thanks for listening. Thanks. I, I asked him when he said, can you let me know? I said, just, you have to send me a picture. So he was faithful to send a picture. I really, really appreciate that. That is great. Hey, you know, another thing that people do when they text in to me, Steve, is that we have a thing uh, at the in North American Ministries, who we, you and I oversee North American Ministries, we have a volunteer program called Tikva Team. Tikva in Hebrew means hope. It's the hope team. And we have volunteers serving really all around the world, uh, um, uh, representing and serving on behalf of Friends of Israel in a volunteer basis. And so I, whenever we send them shirts, I always ask them to send pictures of their shirt. And so people have been se- texting me great pictures of them because on the back it says, I've got, on the back of their shirt it says, I've got some serious chutzpah, I dare you to ask me why. And so everybody's sending pictures in to the text line as well. We always appreciate our listeners. Text us if you have any questions, comments, concerns, whatever it might be about the podcast at 424-444-1948. If you're If you are watching live right now on YouTube or Facebook or wherever we are live, I encourage you to text us at 424-444-1948 if you got any questions. Uh, Let us know you're listening. We really appreciate it. Steve? Yes. I'd like to, uh, you know, it is 5,784, Chris. It starts actually on Friday night. You have to, are you going to explain that? I am going to explain. Rosh Hashanah, the new year. And in fact, who is sponsoring this Podcast, Chris. This is FOI Equip sponsors this podcast. Which means that tomorrow uh, we'll be having one of our FOI Equip classes. It runs three weeks, and I am actually the one teaching it this time. Bada bing, bada boom. And so the three feasts, which take place in the seventh month of the Hebrew month of Tishrei, uh, according to the Hebrew calendar and according to Jewish tradition, the earth is 5,700 and soon to be 84 years that God created the heavens and the earth. So there's kind of a stress here, Chris, because most Jewish people don't necessarily believe that the Bible uh, is inspired, and it is uh, it is the whole counsel of God. Uh, I was, was raised to believe it that way. And so in the Hebrew school I went to, and in the shul, synagogue that I went to, uh, we believed what Rosh Hashanah said. So whatever the year was— uh, now 5,700, soon to be 84, the earth is young. But yet most Jewish people believe it's billions of years old. But when they go to synagogue, they're celebrating a less than 6,000-year-old mm-hmm. earth, which is interesting. So remember, did you know we're using Emily Stone's title of her book, and now we're using the little encyclopedia of Jewish culture. And but as you're going there, if you are listening and you have not registered for Steve's class on the fall feast that start tomorrow night, um, I, I encourage you to do it now by going to foiequip.org. We already have almost 850 people registered for your class, Steve. Are you nervous at all? What, what are you feeling? Uh, I'm feeling like... Uh... <laughs> You know, the good news is it doesn't matter if there's one 
or a thousand, uh, I still have to say the same thing. Eight. So <laughs> it doesn't make any difference. And we have a good time no matter what. No so. matter what. No matter what. So anyway. And that just, by the way, here's another good deal. Just because you register doesn't mean you have to show up live. I mean this as, you know, people have lives, Chris, uh, and there are different time zones that might be hearing this. So it's going to be recorded uh, and you can access it at any time. Registering makes it easy for you because then the notes, there's a, you know, there's a PowerPoint for each one. Mm -hmm. You'll have access to those. So just registering is, is pretty important and you could do it on your own time. But in the little encyclopedia of Jewish culture, or 101 people, places, things, and foods every Jew should know. That's the title. Uh, I looked up high holidays, because, Chris, that's what Jewish people call these three holidays, or holy days, convocations uh, in English. Is Passover considered a high holiday, too? It is, it is not con- it's not called the high holy days. Really? Uh, these are the high holy days. Yom Kippur, which is in the middle, Rosh Hashanah, and then uh, Tabernacles. And it says this. Also known as the High Holy Days and Yamim Noraim, Hebrew for Days of Awe, takes place throughout the month of Tishrei, which is either in September or October. September and even a bit of October, it says, can be extremely busy time for observant Jews. With the high holiday season upon them, it's considered a time of such values as resilience, mm. forgiveness, merriment, and liberation. The two primary holidays... For the period are Rosh Hashanah, Jewish New Year, and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. However, adjacent holidays include Sukkah, or Sukkot, Simchat Torah, and Shimon Yesrei. Weather triumphantly blowing the shofar. Wait, Chris. You got it, didn't you? Bada bing, bada boom. <laughs> That's a big one. That is an amazing one. That's a shofar. And I'll give it a shot. I don't usually do too well. Oh, yeah. and Weather triumphantly. There are people working around us, too. We've got the uh, advancement department over here. Uh, We've got. That's for, let them eat cake. You know what? <laughs> Whatever. What, whether triumphantly blowing the shofar, ram's horn, fasting, feasting, or otherwise commemorating your amim nor amim. The high holidays are a time of recognizing we are all fallible as we are capable of forgiveness. Chris, you know, we joke. This is serious business. This is the time of year that Jewish people think of forgiveness. They think of sin. They think of repentance. Mm -hmm. They think of things that evangelicals think about all the time. But before you make any statement, in reply all right, here we go. to that, here we go. It's right, just an attempt. You're going to blow the show for me. <laughs> I'm going to blow the whole thing. <laughs> yes. Look at you. It sounds like a cow just died. <laughs> did you just call Israel to battle? I, what did you do? I know. I, to defeat. Was that the SOS We've signal? Lost. We've lost. <laughs> You're stuck now. Yep. I, I, you're you're back a, on. There it, you go. There we go. There we go. You know, Aaron Rodgers just hurt his leg. I saw that. I, I, I think I injured him again. <laughs> <laughs> you're good. He's in worse shape now yeah, that's than right. he ever was. Ay, 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 what was that? I'm going to tell you, people are running right now. They ay, are running did away. Did we have anybody live, Chris? Because oh. if we did, they're gone. No, yeah, well, we did have somebody text <laughs> in. <laughs> They're gone. Yeah, no, that's it. So yeah, we blew the shofar and see. They said shalom, shalom. That's right. Uh, shofar, not so show good. There you go. But the, so what I wanted to do was follow that up 
uh, with now nobody listening as I chase them away. You know, as we were preparing for this, which was about 10 minutes before we started, um, I looked this up in again in this little encyclopedia, and I looked up a Jewish guy, and the Jewish uh, guy uh, played Spock, Leonard Nimoy. Oh, yeah. But I did not know this. I thought his name was Spock. He's from Vulcan in the Star Trek series. But his name is... His title is Spock Commander. No, okay. his, he's Commander Shin Tai Guy Spock. Can oh. you here? Try to read it. Where uh, is at that? At the top. At the top. At the top of that page. Up here. Yep. Okay. Shin Tai Spocks. Yiddish is a problem. Oi, Vulcan. <laughs> Vulcan is uh, impossible. Hey, well, maybe that is Yiddish. Knowing the situation. Uh, hey, well, so what did what did he do? And he did it at the last minute. I've seen actually. Through the years, I've, you know, Captain Kirk was Jewish. They boldly went where no one went before, led by Moses led him on Earth. Spock and, and Kirk <laughs> led him in space. <laughs> Do you think Jewish people will actually go out to space? Do you think that will happen? Do you think they'll be the first to go to Mars or something I like that? Do, uh, you never Could know. Be. But, but Spock would say, live long <laughs> and prosper. And you know where he got that, Chris? If you take this and do it here and put it together, yep. you have... The uh the high priest, the high priest would make this motion, uh when he prayed, and so Spock just said, "Well, I, I don't want to. We're not we're not at the temple here. So live long and prosper." There you go. It's I a like half a Jewish thing. <laughs> you know, the, actually, there was an Israeli Air Force commander um, who was a part of the Air Force, uh, the Israeli Air Force when they um when they struck. Was it Iraq? When they went and oh yeah the the reactor the reactor yeah, the it, obelisk yeah, or something mm-hmm, I forget what mm-hmm. it was but um, he was a part of that mission um, and uh, that was huge by the way big time. people that's the kind of thing you, what you don't know won't hurt you but if you thought about what was at stake whoever gave that order in Israel to go do it the the stakes were extremely high and they just saved thousands maybe even hundreds of thousands of lives they were. They were building nuclear stuff, and they they flew in under the radar. So it was the kind of thing that America was mad, but they were happy. happy yeah, they, they were. Mad they had glad. to be mad in front of the camera. How dare you, yeah. you crazy well, people? We condemn you with all our fiber of our being. Then they call. Hey, thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks so much. <laughs> we really appreciate that. You know, but he actually, when he uh, he left the Air Force, and then NASA was going to have him. He became a um, an astronaut. And I believe he was the first Israeli to go into space. And he was a very secular individual. But when he got to Florida and he started to train and whatnot, he really took it upon himself that he understood that he was representing all of Jewry as he was going into space. So he went to a uh, um, a Chabad and, and an Orthodox Jewish community. And he says, I want you to teach me how to do proper Sabbath keeping and kosher eating. I did not know that. Because I'm going to do it in space. So when I go up to space, that's what I'm going to do on behalf of my people. And that was actually uh, the Challenger. Was it the Challenger that exploded? Yep. He yep. was on that. So he actually carried with him like artwork from the Holocaust and things. He he carried this like a a Torah on a on a micro, like a small little, you know. Oh, small, I did not know that. And he went up there and um, and then it ended up, as he was coming back down, the, the shuttle had exploded but he went up there carrying with him the 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 representing the jewish people in space but it, i found it interesting um 
you know, it was like almost like a one small step for mankind, one giant leap for Jewish people. I say that was just the mentality. But that's why he kept kosher. He did Sabbath. He, you know, I don't know if you can light candles up there, but he did everything that he possibly could in order to keep. Well, I don't think Kirk Kirk and Spock ever did anything like that. No. They didn't do that. No. Uh, live long and prosper was as far as they got. That's right. Well, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I got a text from a listener, and they said, you know, if you're taking requests for what to do next, which I always, we always like requests. We we love anybody who is talking to us. That's right, exactly. <laughs> if you text us, you get you get high priority. We're like uh, DJs here for Jewish ministry. So you send in requests, and we'll try to play it, okay? But uh, he requested, hey, you know, when your next book comes around that you're going to study and go through, would you make it the book of Daniel? And I, I said to Steve, what do you think of Daniel? Boom, bada, beam. That's right. So Steve said, let's go. I mean, we've already already done Leviticus, so everything's downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. So we, we took uh, uh, your advice, our listener who encouraged us to uh, study the book of Daniel, and uh, that's what we're going to start today is Daniel chapter 1. But first, we thought we'd uh, begin with some introductory comments on Why Daniel. don't you start us off, Chris, Yeah, uh, and then I'll follow you. So, you know, it, it's interesting. In doing some studies on Daniel, uh, the background is quite fascinating because there's a lot of things that were going on. Sometimes, you know, the Bible is written... It's a Jewish book. So, of course, it highlights the events that are happening in the Holy Land. That's the focus. That's the primary focus. Of course, the nations are, are, are all around Israel, but the focus is on what's going on in Israel. Uh, so when you're actually able to take a historical look and step back to see all of the movements that God is doing are surrounding Israel, it gives a greater picture as to why Daniel is writing from Babylon. What were the events taking place? And what happened is that, uh, you know, several hundred years before Daniel goes to Babylon, there was actually a downfall of uh, the largest empire in the world at that time, Egypt, which was a big power player when you go back to the book of Exodus and really controlled a lot of the Middle East, controlled a lot of Mesopotamia, those areas. Uh, It lost its influence and kind of shrunk back to where it was supposed to be, which opened a void for people to fight with one another in order to gain power and significance. And that's where a lot of the kings of Israel, if you ever watch the kings of Israel in the book of First Kings and Second Kings, they're fighting not only with themselves, the kings of Israel and Judah are fighting, but also the kings of Israel and Judah are fighting with their neighbors. And they're fighting because no one there is controlling the whole thing. So there's a lot of struggle. There's a vacuum. There's a vacuum that's there. And so eventually a big empire rises up. Uh, called the Assyrians, and they begin to fill that vacuum. And actually, the the nation of Israel, uh, the t- northern ten tribes, get sucked up by the northern by Assyria and uh, and carried away. Um, and then the northern ten tribes come under the the uh, subjugation of of Assyria, um, and that's where the Samaritans come from. There's a whole story there. But then what happens is Judah hangs on. Judah kind of maintains its own identity for the for the most part. But then the Babylonians rise up, another group of people, and they take over the Assyrians. So now they kind of absorb all of their empire. And now what's happening is this guy named Nebuchadnezzar in 605 BC is under the leadership of his father, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who is, you know, wanting to expand his kingdom. So he's going down into, into Egypt. Uh, and so Nebuchadnezzar is going to Egypt and defeats— There's a big battle that takes place. The Battle of Carchemish in 605 B.C. Big, big. We we never heard of this place or this battle. People who've gone, who take it uh, to another level in seminary or Bible college, something like that, 
they've probably heard of it. Maybe a pastor or two in your message, uh, if they're doing Daniel, they might announce that. But it's a huge battle. That's right. And Judah already is it's Judah's in a sensitive location because the 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 country of Judah, the people of Judah, Jerusalem and all the surrounding suburbs of Jerusalem. They've been feeling the pressure for a while now. They've got the Assyrians that were on their back, if you remember the story of Hezekiah. And now the, you know, everybody kind of wants a piece of Jerusalem. They want a piece of that area of the world. It's a very sensitive area of the world. It's a land bridge. It's a land bridge. Everybody wants that. Three continents. If you control Israel, you control world trade. That's the big picture. So, of course, they want that area. And um, and so what ends up happening is this battle of Carchemish happens in 605, and actually Nebuchadnezzar defeats the Egyptians, and then he finds out his father died, so he goes back to Babylon, and he's he's uh, not knighted. What is it called to become king? He's uh, enthroned as king of uh, Babylon in 605. But then instead of going, ah, I'm going to stay here, he gets back and he comes back to Israel to Judah. And he begins the process of subjugating it in 605 B.C., and that's when Daniel was carried away. That's right. You know, like we wanted the best cup we could get. We wanted a good cup. And we had a person here at the office. We said, hey, this these are not just a mug on a mug. These are good <laughs> mugs on a mug. Well, what did he want? He wanted the best of the best captive. Uh, and that's that's important to the book. That's exactly right. And he actually took away the king at that time, Jehoiakim, um, and he would later take away further kings as well. He would even come to establish a king, Zedekiah, in, Jer- in Jer- uh, Jerusalem. He would actually kind of be a puppet king um, prior to Jerusalem's fall. He didn't last too long. No, he didn't last long um, at all. And so anyway, uh, this is when Daniel's carried away. Actually, there are there are three deportations that happen in this time period. 605 is the first one when Daniel's carried away. Then 597, which is probably when Ezekiel was carried away around that time. Um, And then at the very end, 586 BC is when Nebuchadnezzar comes in and destroys Jerusalem, which is what the, which is the reason why Ezekiel is writing and all of these prophets, these prophets, Steve, uh, Daniel, Ezekiel, they're called exilic prophets because they are in the exile. They're living during the exile. They've been exiled out of the land. So you have pre-exilic prophets. Those are prophets writing from the land. You have exilic prophets, those who are writing outside of the land, talking about what's going on in the land and in the nations around it. And then you have post-exilic prophets. These are prophets who are writing after the exile and the second return. So that's a really good way to set up and kind of get your mind wrapped around what's going on historically, timeline, all that stuff. Well, you know, Chris, when you were talking about uh, following the people in the land, the Bible follows the people in the land. Well, it has to follow. It also follows them outside of the land. I, land. I, I picture a camera you know we've you you've used cameras i remember when we did a conference you brought a little what was that camera called in dallas back in the days of dallas you had that little camera oh, the gopro a gopro yep. and you were a pro i was so impressed uh and in fact people could watch that interview it's still on youtube <laughs> that's right. which is amazing <laughs> on it was amazing well the our the author the god himself the word uh inspired word of God is now following the people outside. So the camera's in the in the land, but it has to go out of the land because we're following the people. And then in this book, the language actually changes. It changes when they're going to talk about Gentile nations. So it's kind of a neat thing to see, wait, God is following these people. They're having surus. 
inside the land. Now they got to go outside of the land. They're attacked and they're they're taken captive. He's taken the PhDs, potential PhDs. These are the movers and the shakers of the future, and he's taken them with. And Daniel's going to write, and he writes in Hebrew, but he also writes in Aramaic. That's right. Because there's there's an emphasis. I just think the Spirit of God is so unique and such a wonderful. He does it in such a wonderful way. Well, Chris, I have a book here called "The Most High God." It was written a long time ago by Reynolds Showers, uh, who is with the Lord now. Uh, boy, he was our professor here at FOI. He was the theologian. He was my very first professor of all time, freshman year, nine o'clock in the morning, Institute of Jewish Studies. I show up and boom, there's were you, Rennie Showers. Were you awake? Barely. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, I just want, by the way, folks can get this book. Uh, the seven people are listening. If you're interested in the most high God, you could go to FOI.org and FOI.org and go on uh, to the, uh, what's it called? The bookstore? Mm-hmm. Is it and we have look, the link in our show notes. Okay, so the link will be there. And the Most High God, I remember reading this. You know, people say, oh, prophecy, it's so hard and it's complicated. I don't necessarily think a lot of it is. But even if you believe that, a book like this really, uh, boy, he he brings it to a place where it's easy to understand. Let me just read the section, very short sh- section, called The Background of the Book of Daniel. And he says this, the book of Daniel was written during the 6th century B.C. It was a time of human pride. Listen to this, Chris. A time of human pride. Uh, Wait a minute. Hello. Hello. False religions. Hello. Yep. (laughs) Great Gentile kingdoms. Yeah. We got uh, that. Spell China, India. Oh, okay. War. We have a little of that going on in uh, between Russia, right? Uh, And the oppression of Israel. Will it never stop? (laughs) That's what he's... That's good. The human author of the book was the prophet Daniel. Although some have tried to deny the authorship, Jesus Christ himself verified it in Matthew 24, 15. Jesus said, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, unquote, in light of this testimony, to deny that Daniel wrote the book of Daniel is to deny the trustworthiness of Jesus Christ. Daniel wrote his book while living in royal courts in the city of Babylon. Thus, Babylon was the place of writing. The book of Daniel contains one of the most unique prophecies in all the Bible. With precision, it foretold almost six centuries beforehand the exact time that Messiah would officially present himself as prince to Israel. Chris, this is exciting. This this is... Before Christ comes, Daniel's telling you, hey, I could sh- I'll could, i show you the exact time he's going to present himself. And this is why a lot of scholars will say, oh, this was written in the 3rd century yeah, AD. He's writing history, not That's prophecy. That's right. The technical term, they use the term ex eventu, that it happened uh, afterwards, yeah, yeah. and it's like, you know, they're writing a newspaper about what happened in the past. We don't believe that. We actually believe Daniel is writing during the time, and he's receiving vis- a vision. Actually, it's interesting um, and maybe you can highlight this, but uh, one time a Jewish person told me that Daniel is technically not called a prophet. He's not. He's denied as a prophet. It they they don't look at him in prophetic. They just say he's writing history. Well, it, but even um, the idea of being called a prophet, because see, prophets normally prophesy. Daniel never prophesies. He receives a vision from God, 
And that's it. You know, he's usually asking a hey, question. You say tomato, I'll say tomato. I mean, that's what he did. No, that's right. But normally Ezekiel's going out and as a prophet announcing to people, this is what's going to happen. Say it, the Lord, that's et cetera. Right. Yeah, so I, I agree. It's not that it removes the importance of Daniel. It's that normally Daniel is only taking in information where a normal, normally a prophet is sharing, because that's what a prophet's supposed to do. Hey, you're going wrong in this area in your life. You got to shape it up. Because according to God's law, you're breaking it, or else he's, you know, you can repent or judgment's coming. That's what a prophet would do, and he would announce it. Daniel never really does a, a, a an announcement. He's living a righteous life, and God gives him the vision. But it's just interesting because I've heard a guy who believes that Daniel was uh, early, early, you know, written earlier on the time that we believe in the sixth century. But he will say oh, technically he's not a prophet. Yeah, he does it a different way. He does, he does it a different, different way. Exactly. That's exactly. All. That's all. Um, so Daniel is again, uh, raises another thing for us to talk about too, Steve, because we like to do the Yiddish word of the day. And the Yiddish word of the day means that Yiddish is the word that we're picking from. It's a very Jewish, uh, it's a Jewish language that developed as the Jewish people were in a diaspora. And a diaspora means that you're not in the land. You're out of the land. Jewish people are out of the land. Oh, remember last week we talked about uh, Hebrew is looked upon as right, Zionist, and uh, Yiddish is the language of the people. The, They're downtrodden. That's oppression. And that was for an, out of the New York Times. I couldn't believe it. Exactly. And so, uh, it, but the picture is that this is actually the first time that there is an experience of a diaspora where uh, Jewish people will maintain their identity in another land. Now, here's the difference between the northern. You might think, well, I thought the Assyrians came down and carried carried away the northern ten tribes. Well, number one, the northern ten tribes had already kind of adopted pagan practices long before the Assyrians ever came. And then they also commingled a lot of those Jewish people uh, that were living in the northern ten tribes, according to the Assyrians. They were commingled, and again, that's where we get the Samaritans from, and that kind of battle between the Jewish people and the Samaritans that will develop later on. But here is the first time that we're going to see through the book of Daniel that Jewish people are going to do all that they possibly can apart from the temple, apart from the land, apart from the things that God drawed them into according to the, his promises— and they're going to maintain an identity in another Gentile land. And that is going to be one of the main themes that we see throughout the book of Daniel as well. And, you know, it's interesting to read the book of Daniel and find a way to for us to identify with them. Now, us, I mean Jewish people. Mm -hmm. uh, we, as you said, we lived outside of the land. What did we do? How did we live? Uh Daniel could have used a lot of excuses. Uh, boy, I'm telling you, growing up, uh, you hear uh, American Jewish people. I was, I'm part of that. Uh, uh, I can't do, I can't do that. Not in this culture. I can't do it. Uh, Daniel could have said all the same things, and he didn't. No. And we're not asking people to put themselves under the law. That's not what I'm saying. I think the way we can be inspired by Daniel is, first of all, Chris, he was a young guy at the t when he first started. When, when we are introduced to Daniel, we can say he's probably in his, some say he's in his middle teens, uh, some say in his older teens, somewhere around there. He, and no mother and no father outside of his family, which is huge in that period of time. Family's big anytime. It's big now, uh, and it should be. But imagine being taken away from your family. You're on your own. Uh, that's what happens to 18-year-olds when they go to college. Yep. And most of them... 
I was one a long time ago. When you're away from your parents, you say, oh, you know, I could try different things that I wouldn't do when I was home. Daniel kept straight. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's a wonderful testimony. And we're going to get into that probably starting next week. Another thing as well is during this time period, a lot of scholars believe is when the synagogue developed. That as the Jewish people are away from the temple, and you have to imagine, I think it's hard for Christians uh, to get an idea, a sense of what the temple meant to the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. The temple was the centerpiece of their faith with God. Of course, their faith was personal. You know, I do believe Jewish people knew that it was you had you had a personal relationship with God, uh, like King David and and other people in the in the Old Testament, Abraham, all of them. They all have Moses. There was a personal connection, Joshua. But when you when you get to the idea of a temple disappearing, this is where we went. This is where the sacrifices happened. This is where we offered up praise to God. You Three times a year, you were required as a Jewish person to come to the temple in honor of who he was and to praise him. And, you know, it was with joy that you would march up to the top of Jerusalem. But now all of a sudden that's all gone. How are we going to maintain this identity when kind of the thing that kind of grounded us together is now destroyed? And Jewish people will uh, will develop over time a synagogue, a place for gathering, and that's what it means. And, and a synagogue was used for many things. It wasn't just it's for— community. It, it was, was community. a community meeting. It's like a, a, the old YMCA kind of thing. You did everything. You prayed corporately together. You needed a minion, 10 people together. You um, you prayed together. You ate together during times of of, uh, of feasts and holidays, and uh, the synagogue pe- became a very big focal point. But the temple itself— was the place that was the place. Uh, even up to the time during the time of Christ, the temple was big. Uh, but so being outside of Jerusalem, being outside of the land, is a big deal. Well, and that's why you have a commingling. It's interesting that you know before the diaspora, before Daniel, before Nebuchadnezzar came in, the destruction of the temple. Before that, you just had the temple. There were no synagogues then. Then Daniel and all the Jewish people go into exile because of Nebuchadnezzar. And now synagogues develop. Then they come back in the land. They rebuild the temple, but they also, in their cities, develop corporate places of worship like the synagogue. Jesus went to a synagogue. That's where he announced who he was as the Messiah. And so you can kind of take advantage of it. You can just read through Genesis to Malachi, and then all of a sudden you get to Matthew, and boom, now all of a sudden Jesus is in a synagogue. You know, that develops over time um, to the point where— you know, it still was developing during the days of Jesus, and so there's the there, there's an understanding of what was going on in the diaspora and how it works its way all the way through to the coming of the Messiah and the Gospels, and then there's even Steve that component of these rabbinical texts that we hear about and we say often on this program, the Mishnah and the Talmud. These become very important religious texts that develop as early on as the diaspora that happens when Daniel and other people are in uh, scattered throughout the Gentile world at that time. Well, you know, Chris, uh, amongst Jewish people, very observant Jewish people, they uphold the Mishnah, the Gomorrah, the Talmud. They're, the way I describe it in a simple way is there's a commentary on the Bible. That's like Schofield or Ryrie or uh, MacArthur or Wearsby, all these different study Bibles. So there's a commentary on the Bible— but then the Jewish people go one step further. They have a commentary on the commentary. <laughs> that, that's the last word. Oh, 
Rabbi so-and-so said this. So that's that would be Schofield, MacArthur, Wearsby. But I say to you, <laughs> and believe it or not, and I'm not saying this in a demeaning way, the scholarship is extremely important to observant Jewish people. They uphold scholarship. They look for people who are studious, who are in the text. They read the text, and then they want to know, what do the rabbis say? And lest we point a finger, Chris, how many believers take their study Bible and say, well, I read this. What does MacArthur say and Wearsby say? And and, and they say, oh, Schofield said it. Boom. That's it. Yep. That it's it's not a uniquely Jewish thing. Nope. It's a human thing. And uh, the and by the way, I'm all for it. There's uh, scholar Christians, evangelicals, who read the Talmud and gain insight yeah. into the text. There is real scholarship there, and you can learn a tremendous amount. But Chris, as we go through this book of Daniel, I hope our listeners will go with us, and we believe that. We, we believe you and I could help them a little bit, at least a little mm-hmm. bit. But you know what we believe even more? The Spirit of God, if they have a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God guides and directs them. Where they're reading the living word with the help of the word who became flesh, dwelt among us, left the comforter, the Spirit of God, to guide and teach us so we can read the text. Any believer can read the text and gain insight, wisdom, and strength. That's an amazing thing. It really is. And again, like you said, it's during this time period where Daniel is in diaspora and Jewish people are in diaspora. Not only the synagogue was developed, but also this idea of a rabbi is developed, a teacher. And, uh, you know, it's fascinating because, you know what, I think when Jesus comes on the scene and he, you know, I always think it's interesting. Jesus never condemns Rome. You know, all the Jewish people at that time pointed their finger at Caesar and said, he's the problem. When really Jesus comes on the scene and you can imagine the audacity, he goes, uh, actually, you're the problem. You know, it's sin. It's it's you're, you've lost your relationship with God. And then who does he really condemn? The Pharisees, the religious leaders who were too busy following the rules, man-made rules, that were leading people away from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and not guiding them to him as shepherds should be guiding. And that's when Jesus speaks great prophetic you know, woes against the Pharisees. But a lot of those man-made rules that the rabbis were, like you said, they were following each other. Rabbi so-and-so said a rabbi this and rabbi that. That all developed during this time in the diaspora. In fact, one of the Talmuds is called the Babylonian Talmud. It comes from this period, and what it's trying to do— In fact, that's the there are two of them, and that's the high-class one. That's right. The one that was written in the land, eh, not the, so much. The Jerusalem Talmud, that, <laughs> not, no, not so much. <laughs> but the, the point, though, is that, again, there's that mentality of they knew, which is amazing if you think about it, that most of the people who were subjugated by the Babylonians, Steve— they sacrificed their culture and assimilated into Babylonian culture. That when the Babylonians came and sucked them into their world, instead of going, I'm going to fight against you, they go, ah, okay, fine. Our God lost, your God won, bada bing, bada boom. I'm you now. And three generations later, you won't even notice a difference. But the Jewish people did something amazing. You know, when everybody else thought their God had died, the Jewish people said, no, our God is more alive than ever because he told us this would happen. We sinned and we're in judgment. And But instead of directing back to who God is and repenting and turning to him and 
following him. You know what they did? They started to create laws around the laws. And they weren't even God's laws. They were now man's laws. They were a fence around the law that kept the people from actually knowing who God was. And we even see those laws today in many ways in a lot of the things that the rabbinics does. That's why it's called rabbinic Judaism, because it's all stemming back to this time period in the diaspora. Well, Chris, we're going to get into that in Equip uh, when I talk about Yom Kippur, because the key ingredient in Yom Kippur is a temple, which means a sacrificial system, and there's no temple. Mm-hmm. There's no sacrificial system. In fact, there's a story in the Talmud, uh, I'll give a, just shed a little light, where the uh, student is looking with the rabbi, and he's, as the city is burning, the temple's destroyed, people are fleeing for their lives. He says, Rabbi, our, our temple is destroyed, our people are fleeing, what are we going to do for our sin? Well, he could have said, well, we got Leviticus 23 and Leviticus 16. Uh, no sacrifice means we're in, in trouble. We we have to figure this out. And this is in 70 AD. Uh, and so he says, from now on, oh, did you, this is like, thus saith the Lord for, from a rabbi. We will fast, pray, and give tzedakah, mm-hmm. charity. So there's a law made in 70 AD uh, because of the circumstances, and there is no further revelation. We're told so. That's interesting. Yeah, that was that. That was at seventy, or is that ninety-eight? Was that no, Yavna? No, no, that was seventy-eight. That well, was, it probably happened at Yavna, but the story in the Talmud is they're standing looking. It probably. Ah. I'm sure it's that way. But the story, especially the way I heard it, is while it's happening. But I wouldn't be surprised. That's a very, actually that's a very good question. And thinking about it, I would say it probably uh, happened later. But they the story looks as though it happened but at right the time. there, right in that moment. Yep. Interesting, Steve. Can I read a little bit of Daniel? Absolutely. And then we'll and, and then we'll continue on. But it says this in Daniel in chapter one. It says in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. This is around September six hundred five B.C. And the Lord delivered Jeho- Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the the treasure of the house of his God. So we're going to actually see these articles later on when we get to the finger that's writing on the wall. They they reappear in the in the book of, uh, mm-hmm. of Daniel. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the king, uh, the chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and from nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome and showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve the king's palace, which is basically the opposite of me, Steve. By the way, I was just going to say, I graduated in the top 10% of lower third of my class. I'm still in Israel. They they walk by and say, not this guy. We're looking, not this, no blemish. I had, when I was a teenager, it was blemish city. I took a medication called Accutane for my acne. It was so bad. They don't even prescribe it anymore because it could dry your liver out and who knows? But uh, hey, they look. They, they would pass right over me. If, if Nebuchadnezzar's people were looking for us, they're looking at not those That's, people. What's his grades? Get him out of here. Okay. So it says this: uh, he was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians, which you can see again right away. The Book of Daniel is developing this idea that they wanted to integrate these Jewish people into Babylonian culture. 
They didn't just want to bring them there. They wanted to make them Babylonian in many ways. The kings assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter into the king's service. Now They so, went to seminary. They did go to sem- yeah. Babylonian seminary. Babylonian seminary. And, and scholars will actually say, you know, there's debate on why they were doing this. Uh, some scholars argue that uh, actually it was an anticipation of the fact that Nebuchadnezzar would subjugate Judah so they wanted to make sure that they had some Jewish officials that could rule over that part or at least give some instruction. So that's one potential outlook on what's going on here. But among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Han- Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief officials gave them new names. To Daniel, he gave Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To, uh, to Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Now stop right here. Go Chris. ahead. Stop right here. Verse 8, just those first few words, Chris, this is this, this is huge. Is huge. Mm-hmm. This is not just for Daniel. This is for you, Chris. This is for me, and this is for any listener listening. Go ahead. Now yep. read. It says, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king that would uh, then have my head because of you. And Daniel said to the guard, uh, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servant in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. Chris, I have a question. Why is it, and I'm one of them too, why is it we all we, we always remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and never their Hebrew names? That's inter- yeah, it's interesting. I, don't, I never could figure that out. I, I, I know for myself... It, I don't know if it's the way my mind is. It's harder to remember their Hebrew names than, I don't know if there's a rhythm to the names, but, uh, you know, we know it's Mishael, Hananiah, Azariah, but we don't say that. None of our kids who went to Sunday school, it's always Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I just find that interesting. Do they do their names appear again in the, in the, um, in the fire? Do their names appear there in the fire as well when they are? In chapter four, right? Is that where, I, I'm just I, wondering if... I, if that's where, uh, if there, here we go in chapter three and verse sixteen. Three. If you notice, and this is the reason why I, I think in chapter six, uh, chapter three of verse sixteen, it doesn't mention their Hebrew names. It only mentions ah, their. That's right. That's right. So it says just Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and it says that multiple times back in uh, verse eleven that's and twelve. That's probably why I got my question answered. So maybe they only mention their names. Yeah, we'll have to find out as we go through it. But yep. I agree with you cuz I prefer the Hebrew names. Yeah, it's just it's just interesting. It says this at the end of the 10 days, I love this, Steve. They looked healthier and better nourished than any of the other young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine. Uh they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. You know it's you know there's a Daniel diet. Did you know that? No. You never heard of the Daniel diet? I have not heard of the Daniel diet. I, I got to look. So what is it, veggies? Well, I think and water. Right, it sounds so wonderful. <laughs> have a tomato. Have a glass of water. I, enjoy. I've had here Daniel diet recipes, 25 fast dinner ideas. Oh, all, give me a couple. All right, here we go. Let's see if I can get them up here. 25 Daniel diets. Uh, Greek baked 
Greek. Hey, Daniel's diet is a Greek baked zucchini and potatoes, vegetables. Yeah. Um, let's see. Zucchini with chickpeas and mushrooms. Oh, right, chickpeas. You know, we got a guy in Australia, Mark Rogers, and I see him once a week on our Zoom meeting and for chapel, and he's a vegetarian. So I always ask, so, especially because of the time difference, it's morning for us. It's near bedtime for him. What was your vegetarian meal? Everything is chickpeas. I My head would turn into it. The guy eats chickpeas every single meal. I, yeah, we yeah, got yeah, yeah. to send this to him because here's the vegan sweet potato chickpea curry. Yeah, there you go. And he loves curry, by the way. Curry's big seasoning for, like, for him, at least, as a vegetarian. Uh, vegan Indian curry with cauliflower and lentils. So, yeah, it's mostly, uh, here's one, vegan African peanut stew in the Instapot. There you go. So the are, Daniel are you diet. rushing to these? Are you, are, you, are you in on all these? Do, what do you mean? These diets? I, I mean, you're a food guy. You like, so is this, are you saying, hey, I could hardly wait for that peanut uh, curry. If somebody else is making it for me, I will uh, eat course. it 100%. But I'm not necessarily. Are you going I, home to the Katolka house and saying, guys, get out the Instapot. We're having peanut soup. No, I, I'm not doing that. Anything. I just made steak last night. So. Ah, there you go. <laughs> Sorry, Daniel. But Daniel ate a vegetarian diet. Which and is, he, pur- note, he purposed in his heart. He made a decision. Chris, that. That's big time. That's, that's, I think uh, those people who are listening who know Christ as Savior, that's, that's really what happened when you got saved. You got, you, you, you stood, you heard the word, you said, this is true, and you purposed in your heart, you come to Christ. You're going to make a profession of faith based on what I'm hearing. This is what I set out to do. Uh, and that's an amazing thing for a young guy away from his family uh, turning to the living God, trusting in what he grew up learning and trusting in that and saying, look, and and notice too, he didn't just rebel. Yeah. Hey, I got an idea. Get, let's try 10 days. Yep. Give me, check it out. See, look at me. I don't have acne anyway and see if I have acne <laughs> after this. But you know, it, it, it does that, you know, when you're, when you're studying in the ancient day to actually have some weight on you, meant that you had some money. When you have weight, weight was not looked down upon at all. Uh, Are I'm you not, saying Daniel was fat? No, no, no. <laughs> I'm not saying he's fat. <laughs> he had a weight I, problem I'm eating say- peanuts and... Uh- <laughs> no, but I'm saying when you, uh, you know, w- the point in the story is the guy's going to be eating vegetables and water. The king's going to see he's slimming down to nothing and he's going to have my head. Why? Or because- maybe all the other people were kind of porky and he looked... Even better. He was trim and lean and nice. Who knows? But the idea, it's almost a miracle. That's the thing is that as everybody else was eating these, probably fill wine and the drink, eating good food that they would be getting, you know, to work. Trafe, by the way, unclean. That's the point. He didn't want to defile himself. It's almost a miracle that he ate kosher food and water and he maintained his, his, uh, his physique and, even more so than the other people eating all the uh, unclean food. All the chazerai. <laughs> chazerai, bad food. But right away, we'll end here, Steve. But right away, the picture that you see is that Daniel, in the midst of living in a world that wasn't his world, uh, a Gentile world, 
got he was asking uh the the Gentile world, I want to maintain my identity to God. I don't want to eat these. He had foods. chutzpah, Chris. He had chutzpah. And by the way, uh, you know, we have a tikvah team that has chutzpah, don't we? That's we were talking about yeah, that earlier. I know we the were t-shirt. And the t-shirt says chutzpah. Daniel had chutzpah. Daniel had some serious chutzpah. He, he would have worn our t-shirt. That's right, because the guy could have said, I'm sorry, buddy, but no. But he said, No, I would like to maintain this identity. Of who I am. Most I'd, Jewish people could relate. It never hurts to ask. <laughs> just, just ask. That's right. All right, Steve, we'll pick up at Daniel again next week. Well, uh, Chris, let's go to something kind of serious here that is, to me, this is uh, really amazing to me. It's a. Uh, it's actually from Calvary Chapel Magazine, mm-hmm. uh, first church I ever went to, Chris, uh, back in 1976. I had never been to a church in my life, uh, Chuck Smith in Costa Mesa, California. I went to Calvary chapel there. And you say, actually, in your testimony, you say that you were very nervous to go to a church. And no one knew me anyway. I'm in California. I moved from Cleveland. Nobody knew me. And yet I'm so, so nervous. Well, how could I go to this place? It's hard to describe. I knew nobody knew me, but I didn't want to feel ashamed if somebody saw him. Who's going to see me? Nobody knows me. You mean like a Jewish person? Like, hey, you're Jewish. What are you doing walking exactly, into there? Exactly. But you, uh, mess- you you mentioned that when you got to church, number one, you were uh, um, relieved. Because 100%. the message, I think you say, is from the book of Isaiah. Was, first of all, I thought I had in my mind what a church looked like. I'd seen some, at least from the outside, you know, stained glass windows. I knew there were crosses everywhere. Well, Calvary Chapel in 1976 didn't have any any stained glass windows. And when I walked into the church, it was an auditorium. And Chris, there was a menorah <laughs> on the on the pet, on on the stage. There was a menorah, and he opened up to Isaiah 53. Now, no one knew me, and I said, how did he know I was coming? <laughs> how did he know? Well, he's he got the menorah. He's he, got Isaiah. He didn't know, but God knew, and it's just amazing. So here's this uh, story in Calvary Chapel magazine, and the headline is, Forgiving the Unforgivable. Chris, this, this is where you and I live. This is where Friends of Israel lives. This is where the Lord Jesus lives. Hmm. Forgiving the Unforgivable. Son pardons his father's murderer. Chris, this is from the uh, murders that took place in Pittsburgh with uh, the synagogue that uh, where there was the, the killing. Uh, and Jared, 69-year-old father, Irving Younger, uh, was among those who were killed. Well, something happened to Jared. Uh, he went to a Calvary chapel. I don't know which order, but he... He became a believer. So Jared Younger is the son of a individual, Irving, who was killed at the Tree of Life synagogue killing that took place. Correct. So he, a Jewish, a Jewish father, a Jewish son, Jared Younger, and but he's going to Calvary Chapel in California. Hundred percent. Thanks for translating for me. I don't want to be confusing. I'm just so excited to read this. This is one of the. It's it's just who Jesus Christ is. Mm. So. Uh, he had been following the uh, the whole thing, the the trial, everything, and uh, sudden it says at the end, suddenly he heard his name called. Jared began his statement with a prayer. Then he used his time to share the gospel message and express his forgiveness to Robert Bowers. For if you forgive men their trespass, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Hmm. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father 
forgive your trespasses. Here we're, He's a Daniel here. He's a Daniel. He purposed in his heart. This is a modern-day Daniel. His life is changed by Christ. His father is murdered in a vicious anti-Semitic thing. And here is a young man whose life, is, life has been changed. And as a, in obedience to the Word of God, because he was forgiven uh, for his sins, he could look at the murder of his father. I don't know if... Think about it, Chris. We can't all say we'd act just like Jared. I I can't say that mm-hmm. uh, because our flesh can overcome. It it does. Um, uh, Paul himself said, "That which I do, I shouldn't do. That which I shouldn't do, I do." Oh, wicked man that I am! I believe he was a saved man when he said that. But here, Jared forgives him. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful story, and so. Raised Jewish, it says he became a Christian at age 23, attends Calvary Chapel, South Pittsburgh, actively serving there. I can't do any of this apart from God. He's definitely my strength and my motivation. It's what amazing. a great story. You know, and uh, again, like you were saying, it's that idea that the world, you know, if, if Daniel were to embrace the world, he would have eaten all the food and been just like the Babylonians. And, you know, in every sense, the world would urge a person to be angry and 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 you know I'm sure I'm sure Jared is angry and you know and to voice his uh frustrations at his fa- at the the killer's father but instead Jared took the approach of the way Jesus instructs us instructs us to live even in the prayer the idea of forgiveness which is definitely less worldly and more uh, much more biblical so it's an amazing story of God's grace and he's a, He's the storyteller, isn't he, Chris? God is the storyteller. That's right. Well, speaking of storytellers, you can't you can't get around this one. Uh, Breitbart reports that you can watch. Actually, I watched it. It's amazing. Thousands of Jewish people attending midnight prayers at the Western Wall. Thousands of Jewish people attend midnight prayers at the Western Wall, the holiest site in their faith, on the last Saturday night before Rosh Hashanah, reciting the Shech Shlichot. 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 Yeah. Sorry about that. No, no problem. Or traditional prayers of repentance or penitence. Rabbis led the crowd in reciting the prayers and sounded the shofar, just as Steve did earlier. Uh, ram's horn that is meant no, to... Re- not just as I, they, I did a terrible job. They did it the right way. <laughs> but it says that... the, the, the It talks about what the shofar is. Uh, but uh, um, And then Rosh Hashanah, it talks about the fact that Rosh Hashanah is, marks the new year of 5,800 and 84. But Steve, these this was an interesting gathering that took place. Thousands came out to begin the high holy days Chris, for the Jewish people. You know, we sometimes talk about uh, uh, secular Judaism. We talk about religious Judaism. We talk about Chabad. We talked about the Pharisees. Rosh Hashanah is a, a time that a Christian can learn a lot. Uh, repentance. Repentance is on the mind of Jewish people during uh, what we call these high holy days, repentance. That means they evaluate their life. They're examining their life. The greeting, Chris, if I were to greet you uh, in a Jewish context, I would say, Chris, may your name be inscribed in the book of life. My desire for you is that your name is in the book of life, which immediately says, wait a minute, Jewish people believe in the book of life. They believe in eternity, life after death. We've talked about that. It's it's the conundrum, Chris, where ingrained in the system, which has its foundation in the Bible, there is a 
no-brainer. There is eternal life. There is a future after death. But amongst the people who are involved, that eh, just depends who you are. It's up to you. Choose yourself, etc. But I want you to be inscribed in the Book of Life. And then when you fast forward uh, between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, that's where you got to do a lot of mitzvot, Chris. Mm -hmm. You got to—that's where it is uh, works-oriented. And you—you get the more mitzvahs you do, the better shot you got because you, your good deeds have to outweigh your bad deeds before your name is sealed. In one of those books, either for the, the book year. of life for the year. That's right. Correct. Um, so yeah, the, and it, this is why, like you said, it's called the High Holy Days because it's starting, it's kickstarting Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and then to the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot, God dwelling with us. Because we're going to go through this process of repentance, uh, recognizing who we are, examining ourselves, asking for repentance, Yom Kippur, and then because of that, God will come. And dwell with us, and he will be with us, the picture of Sukkot in some way. So there's exactly. a theme exactly. a theme there. Okay, so the next, Steve, is this. This comes uh, from the Times of Israel, and it says this. Israeli population rises to 9.795 million on Rosh Hashanah Eve. 73% of the population is Jewish in Israel, of which 44% classify themselves as secular, 21% are Arab, and 6% belong to other minority communities, Steve. In Israel, Chris, you know, we talk about Israelis, and let's face it, if you say Israeli to somebody, they're automatically going to think they're Jewish. And I understand that. They got about a 75% shot that they're right. <laughs> but there are another 25% who are not Jewish, and that's we talk about it all the time from a political point of view and from a rights, citizens' rights point of view. If you're Israeli, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Gentile. If you're an Israeli citizen, you have the same rights as a Jewish person. And the courts don't distinguish mm -hmm. between uh, your being Jewish or not Jewish. And so the population is growing, uh, and uh, it's amazing because, Chris, in 1948, there were 650,000 uh, Jewish people. 650,000. In Israel. In Israel. Yep. When they became a country. And now there's about 7 million Jewish people. That's amazing. It, it's, it's, it is amazing. But they still haven't reached pre-Holocaust numbers. Exactly. Exactly. I want to highlight this, too. Of the Jewish population, age 20 and over, 44.2% classify themselves as secular or non-religious, which I mentioned. 21% as traditional, but not very observant. 11.7% is traditional and observant. 11.5 is religious, and 10.8 as ultra-Orthodox, or also known as Harari. My so. head is spinning. How many different? What are you? You're a little of this, and you're a little of that? Ah, not so much. You know, when you talk to Israelis, though, I'm talking about now Jewish Israelis, uh, and you they don't really, they talk about the religious and then the rest of it. That, that's yeah. the way an Israeli breaks it down. The very religious and the rest of us. You could be orthodox with a kippah. You're still not part of... They, there's a unique group that most of the Israeli regard... When they say religious, they're talking about a specific group, which we would call ultra-orthodox. Ultra, yeah. And I learned uh, from doing years of origins and spending time with people... You tell them what origins is. They don't know what well, you're talking about. Origins is our volunteer program for young adults you in Israel. You used to lead it. Yeah. We'd spend a month in Israel for almost 10 years or 12 years or something... And you get to spend time with Israelis, and you learn so much about the culture. And, you know, I learned, uh, you know, that uh, wearing a kippah 
you know, if someone was wearing a kippa, they were observant. Now, again, you, it's interesting that that how they break it down because you can either be uh, um, traditional but not very observant, or you can be traditional and observant. And so you'd you'd see a guy. You, a lot of them they wear jeans and they wear a button-down shirt or whatever. They just and have a kippa. They have a kippa as a sign that they believe God's their authority, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, what's funny is secular is different in Israel than America because secular in America goes almost it's almost an atheistic perspective in Israel if you're secular it doesn't mean you don't believe there's a god it just means you don't believe in the god of Abraham you, you wouldn't label him the god of Abraham Isaac and Jacob secular is in relationship to Judaism not so much you know uh, you know other so you're not wearing a kippa mm-hmm. so when you see somebody not wearing a kippa non which is most Israelis 100% especially when you get to Tel Aviv and things of that uh, yeah, nature that's right that's right but when you go to Jerusalem now you're going into the religious hub of that, the Jewish that's people that's right in fact you break it up uh, in Jerusalem that's the that's where people pray. In uh, Tel Aviv, they play. <laughs> and in Haifa, they work. That's right. That's where they work. That's Big where they work. High tech all the time. That's all right, everybody. Hey, listen. Yiddish word of the day. You give us the Yiddish word, Chris. I'll give it to you. All right. So the Yiddish word The Yiddish word of the day is challah. 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 You got to get the challah. Like challah bread, Steve. Challah bread. And as we think of the holidays, uh, Jewish people... Uh, who are semi-observant, observant, they will be having challah, and they'll have honey with it. Mm. The idea is you dip the bread, which is a uh, a, sh- a Sabbath bread. Uh, it's not a holy bread, but it's for ho- holy days, and you dip it into the honey. Everybody does, wishing, desiring, hoping for a sweet New Year. Oh, fantastic. It's not only the bread they'll dip, because after all, you need any excuse for the honey. You'll take an apple, too, and dip it. Double sweet. I love challah bread. Now, you're saying in... Wait till you make it into French toast. Oh, with the little maple syrup. Oh, man, you got me hungry now. good. Is that on the Daniel diet? That's my question. I don't know. (laughs) With some chickpeas on it or what? (laughs) Enough with the chickpeas or and the peanuts. I I will say I love challah bread, but it's interesting in, in in the way that you phrased it when we were talking about the Yiddish word of the day, it's any type of bread that can be used for rituals in, in Jewish, uh, in the Jewish faith. So it doesn't have to be the breaded tied, you know, like but there's the, a unique challah is always yellow. It's a deep yellow. Mm. Uh, I, I don't, I can't talk about we it. We need to I'm bring hungry. it in. Yeah. We need to bring some challah. Uh, actually, in. Uh, my wife ordered three loaves, one for us. We're using it tomorrow night. Uh, when my grandkids come over, and one I'm taking with me. I'm speaking in North Carolina, Chris. You're going to carry challah with you. I'm bringing a challah bread with me. All right, North Carolina. We don't schlep for people. (laughs) Look out, North Carolina. Steve Herzig's bringing some challah bread. All right, here we go. Hey, everybody, thank you so much for being a part of the Jew and Gentile podcast. Hey, don't forget, if you want to learn more about Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, you got to join Steve's class on the feast, fall feast of Israel. You can do that by going to FOIEquip.org. Don't be a stranger. Don't, come on. Come on out. Steve wants to talk to you. He'll talk to everybody, all 850 uh, of you. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, You'll yeah, be yeah. on for hours. No, register, uh, FOIEquip.org. Hey, and then after Steve in October, our very own Peter Cologne, the scholar himself, is going to be teaching on Shabbat Sabbath. Fantastic. It's going to be Shabbat a great time. Shalom. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>